Hi, and welcome to Embark. My name is Liz Solar, and every week on Embark, we are going to navigate through what's next, which means change. And change is something we have had no shortage of in 2020. We've been hit with a pandemic which has just turned our lives upside down, an economic recession, and a national reckoning of systemic racism. So this is perfect timing to welcome our first guest, E. Dolores Johnson. Dolores is the author of Say I'm Dead, a family memoir of race, secrets, and love, published June 2nd by Chicago Review Press. She has also published essays on mixed race, racism, and identity. Her work has appeared in Narratively, Buffalo News, Writers of Color Anthology, Hippocampus, and others. During Johnson's career as an international business executive in tech, she also consulted corporations as well as Berklee College of Music on diversity. A couple of Dolores's many achievements, she directed the digitization of John F. Kennedy's papers at his presidential library in Boston. Through Delta Sigma Theta, she chairs human trafficking conferences for black girls and serves on several boards. She has her BA from Howard University, an MBA from Harvard Business School, she also completed an MFA-equivalent creative writing program. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Find out more at edoloresjohnson.com. And today, right here on Embark. Dolores, I am exhausted just reading this. <laughs> Thanks for <laughs> talking to us today. And welcome. Thank you for having me, Liz. I'm happy to be your first guest. It's a pleasure. And congratulations on the publication. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, the book has been out in the world about six weeks, and I'm very excited. It's getting um, some good coverage in the media, and lots of uh, appearances have happened. So um, I hope this audience will enjoy our discussion about it and the issues that are embedded in the story. Absolutely. Um, you know, Dolores, your your book, um, Say I'm Dead, it, it traces essentially four generations of females through this family odyssey of race and love and courage. But one figure that looms large in your book is your dad. And I'd love you to read a passage from the book that talks about your dad and the challenges of being a black man in the United States. Certainly, I will. I want to say that... Um... The story um, centers also on my mother. My mother was white and my father was black. The scene I'm going to read is one where, as an adult, I'm reflecting on the racism that my family dealt with. Racism uh, because we were black and racism because we were a mixed-race family. It takes place in the early 50s. Um, the incident that's uh, going to be read to you. And it's interesting to note that um, in 1958, the Pew Research Center did a study that showed that 96% of Americans were against race mixing. That was when I was 10 years old and my parents had been married for 15 years already. Hmm. So here we go. Maybe the worst of mixed-race prejudice was that cloudless afternoon when my Sunday sharp daddy put on his wide-brimmed hat and said he had a big surprise for us. We followed him out of the alley from our flat to the street where he opened the passenger door to a green 1940-something second-hand sedan. With an amused bow to Mama, he helped her into our first car, 
where we three kids shrieked in excitement and jumped in the back. I felt as grand as a TV star as we started off on what Mama called a leisurely ride. Daddy drove beyond downtown and up onto a bridge in a part of town I'd never been to. Smiling over his shoulder, he said we'd see a part of the bridge he built, some work he did on his job. Where, Daddy, where? What part did you make, my brother David asked. He slowed way down at the center of the bridge, pointing out seams in the gray metal where he'd welded parts together with a blowtorch. As he continued past it, we kept looking out the back window, imprinting the amazement of Daddy's own bridge. A bridge, he said, wouldn't fall no matter how many cars and trucks were on it. In a low voice, Daddy told Mama to look left at the police car driving up alongside. Two white officers leaned over, eyeing both my parents menacingly. Daddy stopped at the red light at the foot of the bridge, just as their blue lights began flashing. Please, Charles, don't say anything, Mama pleaded, patting him on her leg. Do not argue with them. Daddy shifted his weight and sat up straight. A policeman built like a wrestler in the arena shows we went to came to Daddy's window. What do we have here, he said. A nigger and a white woman with their three little mongrels in the back, speeding, too. When he went to write down our license plate number, Mama warned Daddy again. Put your hands down where he can see them and don't talk back, please. The officer shoved a ticket through the window at Daddy. Go back where you came from, nigger, and don't you dare be caught driving over here again where you don't belong. I'll be watching for you, and this woman, too. I wanted so badly for Daddy to explain, to tell the policeman we were looking at his bridge, but he didn't. The father, who always lectured and shouted at us that we were afraid would spank us, sat mute and stared into his lap. Both officers stood in the street considering him like a dare. One spit on the ground before they went back to the squad car, light still flashing. Daddy started our engine and made a U-turn, heading back over the bridge at a crawl, while the police stood by their car and watched us with revulsion. Once back over the bridge and out of earshot, Daddy exploded. Sons of bitches, he roared. Rotten sons of bitches. Seeing his face turned as hard as those steel beams he'd made, we children cowered in the back seat and kept our mouths shut. Okay, Charles, Mama said. We'll pay the fine, and you can go home in one piece. They might have beaten you up or taken you in if you gave them any reason. You did the right thing. The police had rendered my powerful father a timid subservient in front of us because he had a white woman, because he was a black man. They disrespected Mama for having a black man, skipping any normal courtesies given white women because she was only a sort of white woman to them. Oh, but I was grateful Mama had not belabored those prejudices in my impressionable years. She had carried herself as a decent person and helped us see ourselves the same way, despite how others acted towards us. We never had the woe-is-me talk about mixed-race prejudice. Instead, she modeled how to let such foolishness roll off our backs as best we could. Thank you. Um... Dolores, you know, what strikes me is the more things change, the more they seem to 
remain the same, such an auspicious uh, time for your book to be released one week after George Floyd's murder and, you know, uh, just a few days before the 53rd anniversary of the Loving decision, which struck down state laws against interracial marriage. And then we have a few weeks ago the death of John Lewis, one of the last surviving civil rights leaders of the 1960s. So many parallels to that time, and so much, I think, confusion still, perhaps among white people, uh, about race in general. But as a child, were you and your siblings aware of what that mixed race relationship meant to your entire family? We were constantly um, abused because we were mixed race. My father was abused, and I was abused, and my brothers were abused because we were black as the one-drop rule in the United States, the informal designation that says if you have one drop of black blood, you are black. So we were black people, but we were also mixed-race people, as I mentioned earlier. And so we had a double whammy, if you will, as far as racism is concerned. My father was unable to rent a decent place for us to live because people didn't rent to black people. We lived in a, um, a flat in the second house on a one-family lot, one-house lot. We lived in a pretty much darkness because we were overshadowed by big buildings, and we were heated by a pot-bellied coal stove. There's a story behind that pot-bellied stove. Would you share it with us? I fell against that red-hot pot-bellied stove when I was a small child and burned my arm very badly. The skin rose up like burnt meringue off my arm, and we didn't have a car. My parents called a taxi to, and explained that it was an emergency to take me to the hospital. And we waited on the sidewalk in the frozen winter of Buffalo, New York, and nobody ever came. Later on, my father had to call around to people he knew who had a car to see if someone would take us to the hospital. And he said that the cab didn't come because the white cab company wouldn't come to the black neighborhood. So I learned very, very early what prejudice was about. But there, there were so many occasions when my father would come home from work and he would be livid because he was the only black person in his shop. And while he was a master welder, they treated him as some lower underling. He never got his correct title or pay and was, uh, you know, subject to the word nigger all the time at work. You talk about your father being a formidable figure inside your home. It must have taken a toll on all of you to witness how this treatment affected him. And, of course, the slights, large and small, your family was subjected to. As we grew up, we experienced people who would see our family and shove their children far away so they wouldn't touch us who would spit near us, who would um, in so many ways speak uh, nasty things intentionally in our hearing. So we grew up with that, certainly. So the one-drop rule, it just seems so insidious because it doesn't recognize everything else that you are as a person. You know, race seems to be something that, you know, it could be as incidental as your color of your eyes or your IQ or, you know, quirks in your personality. It could just be one other thing. And so much attention has been paid to blackness. 
But do you, do you find that there's a little bit more clarity about what it means to be black or interracial in this country? Well, let me go back to the one-drop rule and say that um, this was actually codified in law in Virginia. That's where uh, it was first um, made known to be um, a rule of thumb. And then um, if you look at the U.S. Census records, which I have studied all the way back to 1790, you see that the classification of people is, first of all, the category of race. This is the mentality that America has had that's been embedded in our psyche all along. And there were black people and white people. Then there was a category called mulattoes, which is half black and half white. But mulattoes were slaves because the slave masters were raping the slave women. That's how mixed-race people appeared in the United States, from slave rapes. But the masters had their own children out in the fields as slaves giving them no benefit of their uh, paternity. Uh, getting closer to the one-drop rule, where they have not only mulattoes, but they have quadroons, somebody who's a fourth white, and octoroons, somebody who's an eighth white. Mm. So the federal government has been a party to this one-drop mentality all along. Today we have um, a census that has offered the last two counts a category where you can uh, actually check off and self-identify as multiracial. And in 2000 was the first time that I was able to honorably recognize my white heritage and my black heritage when I declared to the federal government, 2000. So from 1619, when the first black people came here, 400 years later is the first time that that was recognized. I wanted to speak to, because I read something in your book that speaks to interracial relationships among master and slave, and you actually have some lineage, some experience with that within your own family and your own history. I do, and uh, practically every black person in America does. Um, I was doing my father's genealogy, so I went south to meet this ancient aunt who um, people thought she would have a lot of pieces to the puzzle, and she did. She got out this old dress box, and we were looking through pictures, and she was telling me the, who these people were and how they were related to each other, and we were building this genealogy chart on her dining room table, and she pulls out a picture of my grandmother at about the age that I was when I went for this visit. And she holds up the picture, and she says, well, look at that. You and your grandmother are the spitting image of each other because, you know, you both have that white side. Well, of course, I knew I was half white. But I said to her, what white side are you talking about? She said, your grandmother's father was white. You don't know that? And I said, no, I, I've never heard of that. She said, yeah, see, her mother worked on the plantation where all the ancestors were slaves and was raped by a white man on the plantation, and the result was your mother, your grandmother. I was so revolted to imagine my great-grandmother, who she said must have been about 15, mm -hmm. being repeatedly abused by this man, and my grandmother being the issue of that rape. And I said, well, my grandmother must have been ashamed. That's why she's never spoken of that to me. And my aunt said, well, why would she be ashamed? She didn't do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. That's what white men have always done to black women, and there's nothing we could do about it. 
And the thing is, in, in the history books, at least the history books that I was brought up with, when you hear about a, a white man and a black woman, it's always couched in terms that she was his mistress and, and not addressing the rape part. And also that this was an exception rather than a rule, but clearly that was not the case. Uh, Henry Louis Gates, who's a famous African-American historian and scholar, has stated, because he's done tremendous work around the mixing of races in America, he has stated that the very blackest-looking African-American in America is still 12% white. That's why I say every African-American shares that audacious history. It's such a painful story to hear, and all of this is just so understandably deep-rooted. So now having written this book, looking around to the national conversation that's emerged around race in our country, Dolores, do you lean more towards the hopeful or skeptical side of things? I look at the overall trajectory of race in America instead of having um, a pro or con feeling. And by that I mean, I've been a student of African American history all my life, and starting from slavery through Reconstruction, through Jim Crow, through the Civil Rights Movement, where I was an activist and remain an activist in a number of ways today, I see that um, changing America's mindset on race is a very tall order. And so many thought it would be conquered during the civil rights movement in the 60s, and it wasn't. There were doors opened and progress made, but I think that we have been inching towards more social justice in this country, but we have a very long way to go. I think that there's a lot people can do to help make this change, and I think more change will be uh, possible. However, I don't know when we will see equity in this country. Well, this is a much longer conversation and one I want to continue with you soon, Dolores. Um, As a white person, I don't think about my race, which is probably the essence of white privilege. So as we start to have the national conversation, we could probably use a common vocabulary so that we can understand each other better and and also some tips on just how to behave in these situations, because really, we are clueless. It's a very big conversation. I agree we won't be able to cover it all. Yeah. We're, we're going <laughs> to... Tr- what I would say is that when there are white people who want to understand better, want to be um, allies in the social justice movement, there's um, an education to be had by reading, and there's lots of books and articles Um, available, but also by talking to black people, by interacting with black people. You know, an opener could be something um, with people that you work with who live in your area, who um, you cross paths with in any number of ways, to say to them, you know, I haven't been as aware before now as I would like to have been to understand what it is to have a black life in this country. And I wonder if you would talk with me about it. And if you get a positive uh, response to have a conversation, the number one rule is for you to listen. I think we have a lot of ideas and interpretations, but if we want to understand what the problem is, we have to listen to the people who have been harmed. As Obama says, whatever you've done, it isn't enough. So 
there's many, 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 many actions that people can do. And I think that once you've studied a little bit of African-American history and you've talked to, and you've, I should say, listened to black people, there's so much more you can do to go deeper and make societal changes to back policy changes and politicians who are going to change things like police policies and uh, working to stop voter suppression because we know that if we can um, have advocates in the legislature and in key political positions who will help make these changes, we, there's a much better chance, chance to see things change. People can also advocate for revised American history lessons in schools because one of the reasons that the white public doesn't know the history of racism in America is because it has never been taught. Mm. So it's time to start teaching that. Agreed. Most of us don't know what we don't know, and we're really well-intentioned, and we feel we are good people, and we're not racist. But there is some unconscious bias that we all have. With casual racism, which I have witnessed as a person who has been mistaken for white, I've heard way too many times how many remarks white people will make to even a stranger like me against black people with the expectation that it's okay to say that and that there won't be any backlash. I know that this goes on because I'm a witness. And I would ask white people to, if you hear something, say something. Don't let it continue. We have so many roles that we can we can play. Think about mentoring minority children. Think about making space for other people in your neighborhood, in your jobs, in your schools. There's so much people could do. Absolutely. It's not, it's not all quick. It's not easy. And it's not always sexy. Sometimes it's just the really hard work of, as you say, you know, starting with the conversation and really listening and taking it from there. One quick question. Having done all of this work and feeling that sense of wanting to empower people to have these conversations about race, have you been able to embrace your white side, the white part of you? as you have the black part of you? I have. Um, Once uh, I met my white family, the expectation of racism and uh, rebuke vanished because they were much more concerned with a loving family relationship than they were about race. I still am in touch with my cousins, and there's um, an understanding that I received through not only my mother's example, but my relative's example um, about what family means, what relationships mean, and how the construct of racism and the embedded systemic racism of this country can be taken out of the equation and we can just be people together and we can love each other. And to prove that, we now have so many more interracial marriages in this country than we used to. In 2000 and 2010, that the growth rate in births of mixed-race children now outstrips the growth rate in single-race children by three to one. So I think a lot of people are understanding what my family came to understand, that race is not important. 
family is and getting along and loving people and giving people a humanity that you want given to you is really what matters. Beautifully said, Dolores. We're going to leave it right here today on a high note. And next time, come back, we're going to finish the conversation with some talk about writing memoir and publishing in the time of COVID. And if you, dear listener, have a story of change you'd like to share, get in touch with me at liz at embarkthepodcast.com. Dolores, thanks for speaking with us today. And special thanks to Mike Coleman from Colcut Sound for his brilliant audio optometry and for being an all-around good guy. Until next time, I'm Liz Solar for Embark. Thanks for listening.